0: Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev.
1: And I'm Professor D.
2: And I'm Crockpot.
0: It was an honor to be with you last session. We looked at the first chapter in our Isaiah series, the first session. And we had a great hope. We learned that though our sins may be like scarlet, that there's hope on the God path, that they will be white as snow. And we were challenged that there's two basic options in life. You're either going to follow the self path, which Isaiah described leads to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the God path, which leads to salvation. Well, we have a continuation of that hope tonight in Isaiah chapter 7. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, thank you for this evening. I'm so grateful for Mick and for John and, and this, this conversation we're going to have, we just, we just ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified and that we would uh, all be challenged and encouraged by your text. We thank you for Isaiah and for this message, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, yeah, so we'll start with the verses 1 and 2. We're, again, we're in Isaiah chapter 7. This is session 2 of our 10-part Isaiah series. So if you give me just one second here. All right. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Well, John, we have a kind of a historical opening here. And so things have gone on from chapter one. So if you could just give us a historical backdrop here, what might have changed since chapter one, what's going on here? There's, there's a lot of names here as well. So help us unpack that, please. Lots,
2: lots of fun names. Yeah. And you might notice, uh, we've, we've skipped over Isaiah six, which is kind of one of, uh, the greatest hits of this book. This is, uh, that's Isaiah's vision of, of God's holy court and his angels and where he's, uh, sort of consecrated into his ministry. That's the uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, um, the Lord of hosts. Here I am, send me, that chapter. Um, so in that chapter takes place, uh, that begins the year the King Isaiah died. So the first king of Isaiah is now gone, going into chapter seven, but actually his son, Jotham, is also gone, and we've we've sort of skipped a king. And we're at King Ahaz now, so we're looking at like 730s-ish BC. Um, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, King Jotham was, was a good king, um, did did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he didn't do enough. He didn't go so far as to remove a lot of those um, uh, pagan religious trappings that um, Judah had, been, had set up. Um, so in his years, God had started to send enemies into Judah. These guys, Pekah and Rezin, uh, the kings of Israel, the Northern Kingdom and Syria. So already we got troubled for, you know, formerly Israel obviously of which Judah was a part is now uh, heading in trying to conquer Judah along with Syria. They're trying, they're kind of forming an alliance against Judah because Ahaz, the King of Judah won't form an alliance with them. So Uzziah is gone. Jotham is gone now. Um, it's it's King Ahaz who did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. If you want to read more about him, Second Kings 16 is where you're going to go. 15 and 16, you get some unfortunate details about King Ahaz and some of the things that he did there.
0: Yeah, so we got a reminder last week that there's the Assyrian nation, the kind of the big, the big dogs on the block, and they're the ones beginning to threaten everybody. And so we have the Northern Kingdom allying with not Assyria but Syria, and they we kind of learned last time they wanted to have Judah join their fight, and Judah was facing that temptation. That temptation looks like it's going to come to a head tonight in our text tonight, and. If they don't want to join, then maybe there's going to be consequences. So geopolitically, John, it seems like there's stuff going on here and the, their neighbors, they're kind of two smaller neighbors are really upset about Assyria, a third neighbor. Do I have that right? right.
2: Yes. Yeah. Assyria is this this looming threat that continues to grow. And we're going yeah. to see that looming larger and larger.
0: And so they're down at, 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 at Judah's doorstep and it's it's, it's a scary moment. We can imagine that the king of Judah is not exactly pleased right now, and he's probably afraid and doesn't know what he's going to do. And yeah, this is a great historical backdrop. Thank you, John. And so let's go now to verses three to six. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shaar your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So, Professor D, make what, what did God want? Uh, we're going to ask some questions in order here. First of all, what did God want Isaiah to do?
1: Well, the first thing God wanted Isaiah to do was to actually hit a hole in one. No, I'm kidding. Um, what God wanted Isaiah to do was to deliver a message to King ah- Ahaz, and uh, He wants him to do it accompanied by Isaiah's interestingly named son along his side.
0: Mm.
1: And what what, what is it, what's interesting about his son's name? She also yeah, yeah. Isaiah's yeah. <laughs> son's name, Shishab jashu happens to mean a remnant shall return. And, and and this is especially significant since the Babylonians aren't even part of the story yet, you know, uh, and they're not even in the scene as far as being a world power at this point. Again, like you're mentioning earlier, Assyria is the, the rising power at the moment. Um, so, you know, it's the Northern Kingdom of Israel uh, that, that, that's going to be getting, actually it's come up and soon, but still Judah's exile was still over a century away. I wonder
0: if his name would have stuck in Ahaz's craw here where here he is. He's going to be telling him, Oh, by the way, don't fear. And Hey, my son, Arenda shall return. He's here with me. I wonder if, if, if that name, I mean, this chapter is going to have a couple sons listed with interesting names. So I just wonder these names are, I, I just wonder if there's a significance to this idea of Arenda because we learned last week in verse nine of chapter one, that if the Lord had not left us, survivors we would have been like sodom and gomorrah so there's something about hope tied to a remnant and here in chapter seven already just with the naming of a kid a remnant shall return i didn't know if there's any more significance there uh, and the basic message he's going to deliver mick what what what, what's the basic thing he's going to tell Ahaz that he has needs to learn and do well the
1: basic message is it, you know, it's kind of a it's, a, it's basically Psalm 46.10, you know, be still and know that I am God, along with a little bit of Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded it, be strong and courageous. In, in short, God's message through Isaiah is, trust me, I've got this, I've got you, trust me. Um, I wanted to actually bring up something too about uh, Pika earlier where it talks about being Remaliah's son. One of the things that um, I was I found out was that that actually was kind of like a slap against uh, Pika because uh, instead of just calling him the king of Israel, it would just refer to him as the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel.
0: Mm.
1: It's like they, they won't even acknowledge him directly as king, mm. which kind of says something about about him as well. Yeah,
0: and, and guys, do so I have this right? It looks like what. What's coming up against Ahaz is let's now conquer this southern kingdom of Judah, and set up a puppet king who's going to do our bidding and join us in the in the fights so and maybe be a three-headed monster going up against Assyria mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. two. Yeah. If he's not going to play ball, then we're just going to you know kill him and take over his kingdom and, and put a puppet in there. Is that essentially what I'm understanding from this? Yeah. To Yeah. yeah. Our, our listeners are probably listening to all these names like what in the heck's going on well judah's up against it this this, this is a moment where the, their national identity and, and and existence might be on the line and i realize you know those of us who have studied history we understand that the jewish people that's kind of like their identity anyway but they're always <laughs> seem to always be threatened and even we get that from the Esther story too even evil ones like Haman. but yeah this is this is like, almost like a turn moment what are we going to do and Mick, I, li- I like what you brought up there this is a moment where god enters the scene and says hey i know things sound dire but just remember th- these guys are like smoldering logs okay so the fire's lit but they're not that much of a threat
1: yeah they're cigarette butts
0: yeah mm-hmm. i say okay yeah there's flame but th- th- this is not like a raging prairie fire or forest fire and, and god's saying calm down it's yes. good they're yeah, probably feeling
2: desperate for, for some help from Judah, any more yeah. manpower they can get. That's why they, yeah, they're insistent on putting a king in there who's more uh, in line with their geopolitical goals. And that king is not Ahaz.
0: Yeah, right. So then, so then God gives a message now. And this is kind of like a prophecy in, in this book of prophecy. So God just gives a prophecy here through Isaiah. And it's thus says the Lord God. It shall not stand, this is seven to nine, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. And then he gives a nice pun here. If you were, and the English translation doesn't exactly do it justice, but we get just enough. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So, wow. And so I know there's some of our more dispensational theologians who are counting off these 65 years. Was it exactly 65 years? Well, we, we understand that coming soon, probably within the next 20 years, according to this prophecy, uh, then the, 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 the grand deportation of, of the northern kingdom is going to start to happen. And then by the time we get to the early 7th century, there's not really going to be a Northern kingdom anymore. And Assyria is going to cart them away. It's going to conquer them, lay them to waste. The Northern kingdom is going to get carted away. The upper 10 tribes, just crispy, crispy critters. They're going to be carted away by the evil Assyrians. And then if I understand correctly, Assyria is going to kind of start repopulating the region and there's going to be some grand intermingling. And Samaria is going to be known as a place of watered down genetics, So much so by the day of Christ in the first century, at most the Samaritans are half-breeds where you've got the, the Abrahamic lineage mixed with Gentile stock. And so this idea, they're not going to be there anymore. It's, it's, he's, he's basically telling, he's telling Isaiah's telling Ahaz, this is not a threat. The, I know they're, I know they're barking and, and they're noisy and you feel it, but it, within a generation, they're not even going to exist as a people. In fact, that would make sense genealogically because they're not even going to exist like true sons of Abraham anymore. It's they're going to be intermarried and all these kind of things. This he's trying to calm Ahaz down and say, You can trust me, because these two that keep speaking, they're not going to exist anymore. And you know, Assyria is going to take care of Assyria's business, and you know, they'll last for a season, the Babylon's going to come. It shall not stand or shall not come to pass. All the things they're promising to do, they don't, those promises do not have teeth. God's the ultimate power here, not them. Amen. And so it's just kind of God right from the beginning. And so there's a great reminder to us this is your moment to stand firm. This is it. Be firm and stable. If you will not stand, if you're not going to make stand, you're not going to have any firmness. This is your moment to take a stand. And if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. Like, this is your moment. Stand. And if you want to have firmness in your life, then you know what? You need to be firm. You need to take a firm stand. And, yeah, it's just a great moment here that, that, that we get just in seven and nine. But we continue. I'm feeling
2: convicted, Joel.
0: All right, man. This is good. The, word, it. Of God. the word of God is doing its job. That's it's, right. It's, it's, it's just like a moment for each of us, even listening to this, is that like God's expecting you uh, even as you come to him with all your issues, but well, wait a minute. What, what can you, are you being firm to trust God? There's things in your life that you can't control. Are you trying to control them or are you, are you standing firm in your faith and trusting God? This is your moment. And the God, when God says he's going to, he's going to handle His business. We trust God to handle this business. Yes. All right. So we now come to 10 to 13. This is the prophecy that we all wanted to, uh, to come across as to why we're here. And I got to scroll down my page, so I, so I have it here. All right, 10 to 13, and and, and John's going to help us with this next section. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And so God said, hear then, O Israel, or Isaiah through God. He said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Wow, what a kind of a moment there! So, 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 John, how would, how would God's prompting of Ahaz in verse eleven be a faith moment rather than a doubt one?
2: Hmm. Well, first, I just want to say I love, I love seeing what God is doing in this passage as a reminder of how, how very gracious he is. This is one of God's favorite things to do is he will, yes, he will put, or he'll allow people to go through difficult things, but he almost always provides signs so that they can be assured of his faithfulness, that he will deliver them through those things. I mean, classic example is like when Jesus was, uh, before he was ascended, he's like, yep, it's, it's going to get really hard and I'm not going to be here anymore, but you're not on your own. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. You're going to have this meal that you take whenever you're together to be reminded that I dwell within you and you and me, you know, God is a God of of signs and he's really, um, he's, yeah, he's putting Ahaz and Judah through it here, but he, he's giving them this, this chance to be reminded of his great faithfulness, and in such a way that, man, like he is offering the king here something that he doesn't offer many people. It's it's such a, a softball. Like whatever you want, whatever you want that sign to be, just so that you can be assured that everything that I just said is true. You name it, you know. Um, and and Ahas's response is is really astounding. Um, it's uh, it's a a show of not faith, taking God up on His offer and saying, "Wow, thank you, Lord. I'm humbled that You would offer such a such an open-ended gift to me. I'm humbled by that." Instead of and and and, and yes, like this is what I want You to do for me. Instead of doing that, He puts on this fake show of piety, where He's like, "No, no, it's it, I can't. I can't test the Lord," um, and effectively um, trying to look like a man of great faith, you know, oh, I can't put God to the test. Well, yeah, there's some truth to that. Sometimes that's the appropriate response, but not when God says, ask whatever you want. You know, imagine if Solomon had responded the same way when God said, I want to honor you. I want to bless you. Like, what is it that you want? You know,
0: that's solvable. a really great, that's a really great point because it's, it's not a moment of, of when God says to do something, it's never a good idea to say no. Right. I mean, and this, this is him saying no, I, I mean, my totally. goodness, I mean, this is a moment where we learn in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And here he's thinking he's making a great faith proclamation and, and, and God's not happy with him. Right. He's like, wait a minute, you're going to weary me with this nonsense. Are you serious? Yeah. He's I acting,
2: mean, he's acting like a Pharisee. He's like an old Testament Pharisee here. Oh, well, you know, I'm so hungry from all this fasting that I'm doing, you know?
0: Right. Mm -hmm. he's acting like he he shows up to the gas station and bill gates multimillionaire shows up hands you your his credit card and says hey go inside and get me a snickers and give me something for yourself you know they you come Mm -hmm. out and, and you don't get anything oh i couldn't dare to presume upon you know your credit card you know oh come on you know this is god here so i love you brought that out john and you know continuing on with that um does this look more like piety or does it look more like faith? Would you say that Ahaz is doing a good thing here or is there something lacking?
2: Yeah, clearly something is lacking. So this is one of those things that, uh, you know, purely reading it, on taking it at surface value. It's like, it, it's not necessarily easy to see if you just read the dialogue there. Um, what is it? Verse, uh, he has, he has says, "I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test." You know, you could hear that and think, "Oh yeah, like that—that's reasonable." You know, you shouldn't put the Lord, your God, to the test. I mean, Jesus says that, right? Quoting, um, but you have to look at the context and God's reaction to this clearly shows no. This was not an act of faith. This was not humility. It was false humility, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was piety. It was, it was this empty, uh, empty display of you know fake righteousness why because ahaz doesn't have faith he doesn't believe that that god is actually capable of delivering on his promises and he's out of touch. Right, so how
0: does god in verse 13 john I, you're, you're spot on how, how does god then verse 13 respond then what what does that say
2: yeah i'll just read that again verse 13 and god said here then oh house of david is it too little for you to weary men or to try the patience of men that you try my patience also. So he's now responding, not only to the king, but to, uh, he's addressing the house of David. So um, all of of Judah here needs to hear this response. Okay, if you're not going to ask for a sign, I will give you a sign of my own choosing. Mm. And that's where he's heading in the next verses.
0: Right? I mean, God doesn't always flex. This is God's flex moment Mm. here. This is God's like, you know what? Not only do I have got this, but guess what? I'm gonna give you something else. Go on, ask for it. I mean, I mean, this is something where we see like the sons of thunder in the gospels asking Jesus, do, do we just call down lightning from heaven? I mean, about these 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 evil people or whatnot. And Jesus has to kind of hose them down a bit. Like, but it's like they they took they took the bold step. And it's like it, it's like God's telling Ahaz. In this faith, I'm giving you permission to ask a bull. I mean, what's the worst that God's going to say? You know what? I won't do that. I mean, but I mean, yeah, but oh no, it's, yeah, there, there, there's, 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 there's doubt in the midst of the presumption there's, or the lack of just, just following through to take God at his word. I think there's, there's a lot, I, I like how you, what you brought up there. there, there's, there's this lack of faith. He's not, he, I, I like what you said, John, because it sounds like Ahaz doesn't really believe God's going to come through. Mm-hmm. Because if he did, I mean, who knows what kind of questions you ask, whatever you want from the pits of hell to the tips of heaven, whatever. I'll give it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So instead, he's going to launch off into a sign. And we're glad he did, because this sign is why we're why we're here. And this is this. Right. Was, so verses 14 to 17. And those of you following along, uh, this is this is precious real estate in Isaiah. And so you're not at all surprised that we're here. So 14 to 17, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Wow. There it is. There now God's prophecy enters into human history. Assyria is coming. So that just tells them right there, you're planning all these things. You know what? This is what's coming. All right. So we'll start, Make
1: What about this prophecy would have sounded really good to Ahaz. Oh, the part that sounds really good to Ahaz is the part where it says, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. If I was Ahaz, that would be music to my ears. Mm. Okay. Excellent. So, so,
0: Crockpot, what about this prophecy would have sounded horrible to Ahaz?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it all sounds pretty good until that final interject, interjection there, the king of Assyria. Um, I don't know how how Ahaz would have interpreted this when he's talking about the boy uh, being forced to eat curds and honey, because that could go one of two ways. Curds and honey were sometimes the food of wealthy people in those days, but it was also, as I found in, in my study of this chapter, a direct result of the fact that their land, their lands are gonna be desolate and barren, and basically they're gonna be forced to eat nothing but curds and honey because They've got no grain for bread, they've got no crops. So I don't I don't know if, if Ahaz is <laughs> I don't know which way he's hearing that. So that could be a, a negative thing to him too. but no doubt when he hears the king of Assyria, that, that's what's, that's what's coming to you. Yeah, he knows he knows what that means. Um, this uh, juggernaut is finally going to make right. it, you know these these smaller, the peons who have been unable to conquer Jerusalem are going to be replaced by, yeah, this this force to be reckoned with that is Assyria.
0: Right. And, and this, is basically, this is basically Babe Ruth calling his home run shot at the polo grounds. So these other prophets that are speaking of Assyria coming, and this is God's doing, that this is a God's sovereignty moment here. Where, hey, the Assyrians are coming, and not only does God know about it, God's prophesying about it. And so this is not, we're not shocked when bad things happen. We're like, well, God, had, you know, God couldn't do anything. No, no, God's here. And, and and God's letting you know this, whether or not this, this boy is turning age 12 or whatnot, having a bar mitzvah and, and knowing the good from the evil. So within the next 12 years, it's going to happen. You could take it literally like that, I guess. I, I right. think you're onto something with the curds and honey. Your land's going to be laid waste. So good luck having, you know, a nice meal. Uh, I, I think there could be something to be said about that. But yeah, it's... Assyria. So it would sound good, Make you you were spot on with that, but also you can't get past, okay, so I got to deal with these two smoldering firebrands, you know, Syria and Israel. Yeah, they're a pain in my neck and they're knocking on my door and being, you know, rascals and threatening me, but I can deal with them. Assyria? Oh no. And yeah. And, uh, you know, Emmanuel is like it's got basically it's got a single meaning here, but a double significance. Uh, The two ideas, the basic. um, Yeah, just the dual implication of Emmanuel, essentially, Um, you know, this is why uh, whenever I see Christmas and when I see the word Emmanuel put out, sometimes it's with an E. It makes it anglicized. I don't like it because I like the I is that 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 sound in Hebrew, the, the with with us is God. Immanuel. So the dual nature, the two, the dual implications, excuse me, the dual implication of Emmanuel, um, since God is with them, which is a good thing, they don't need to fear their, their two dinky neighbors. God's with them. Okay. That's that great promise of Emmanuel that says God's with them. You don't need to fear your neighbors. That's great. Uh, but guess what, Ahaz, Uh, You refuse to trust God, and instead you put all your trust in other things, and yeah, you're going to find out what a disastrous mistake that is. There's something about God's with you, but you don't really trust him. God's with you, you shouldn't be afraid. goes back to 7 to 9. But God with us, but we don't trust God? Yeah, that's dangerous territory. Ahaz is not in a good spot here. So we have some, but this this prophecy has some controversy about it. So I'm very very blessed to have my my two friends with me, John and Mick today. Mick, we're going to start with, um, is it, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go in order. So we're gonna take these. Um, there's we're gonna we're gonna briefly discuss this idea of the virgin, and we will we'll bring up Matthew one. And then we'll kind of bring up fulfillment. Sound like a plan? Mm-hmm. All right. So we're we're gonna do these john mick and joel so we'll take that in order so so if you would just kind of give us some thoughts these are kind of you know they've had some controversy so what what do we learn here about the virgin john the virgin shall be with child so what stands out about that
2: well joel do you want what stands out purely from reading the uh the english bible or what stands out um when you start to do a little bit of digging behind the meaning of this word.
0: The floor is yours.
2: Ooh, okay. Um, well, I apparently there there's, the reason there's been so much controversy surrounding this passage is because of the meaning of that Hebrew word that is rendered here in most of our English Bibles, virgin. The word is Alma in Hebrew. And there's just been a lot of discussion as to, well, does that actually, does it necessarily have the connotation of a woman who is a virgin, or is it just a young woman who's kind of a marriable age? Or sometimes you'll see it uh, rendered like maiden.
1: Okay. So, Mick, anything to add to that? You, uh, yeah, you know, kind of building on piggybacking off of what John said up there. Yeah, the word alma meaning pretty much that, a young, unmarried woman. But here's the thing about that that term, though. Alma was also used in Genesis 24 when it was talking about Rebecca, you know, Isaac's, uh, you know, uh, squeeze. And and I, and I think it's safe to, to, uh, to say that, that it meant virgin as, as virgin was usually understood. So it it was not very uncommon for them to use it as, as a straight up virgin, as we all understand what a virgin is in the English language. So, um, the, the real question would be, you know, to the point that John was actually making is, why not use the unmistakable word? Uh, I, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Bethula or Bethula or whatever, for, for virgin. You know, now I'm not a linguistic expert, so you know, I, I I really can't say for sure. But somehow God, in His infinite wisdom, when He guided Isaiah to write this, He He went with Alma. And I'm sure he had Genesis 24 in mind. Could he put that there before? And, and, and again, based on what I've read, this, you know, basically the Holy Spirit is guiding Isaiah to, to write this this way. Um, and, and, you know, for whatever reason, um, could it have met a young unmarried woman in their time? It could have, and then mean straight up virgin by the time of Mary, Maybe. But you know, part of it uh, also is the, the the fact that somebody brought this up in the past is that a young woman having a child is not a really big deal, you know. It it it, it would have to for it to be even a sign. It would, it, I think, the context makes it clear that it had to be a, a straight up virgin, right? Yeah, Babe
0: Ruth doesn't call a shot and then pop out the
1: second. Yeah. I mean,
0: this, this this is God. This is for this to be a true God moment here, a big moment that God's saying, "I'm going to give you a sign. You're not you're not going to do it. Fine. I'm going to give you one. You know, some woman's going to have a baby. All right. Well, I mean, that's nice and all, but I mean, that's he did say sign, and and yeah, from from a linguistic standpoint, Isaiah had could have had two other words. He could he could have said woman. He could have if he meant to say a young girl. He had a young girl. He chose this one, which had a, a, a double, kind of it had a meaning, it could mean that. And we know it did mean that because by the, by the time the Septuagint was translated, they flat out put it the Greek word Parthenos. So hmm. that's virgin. And so yeah. the, 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 the Septuagint scholars whose whole world was to make sure they got the accuracy to put it with a language that was the now lingua franca of their day, Greek, that had the precision that they needed they chose the precise word for virgin. And you got to remember, this is well before Matthew would, would be written, writing chapter one and applying this. Right. So this is to be settled theology by the time Jesus were even a company, remotely come onto the earth. And so by the time we get the Septuagint translation, they're, they're just taking it. We're going to leave no mystery at all. We're going to make sure that everybody knows that this sign is about a Because then a virgin all of a sudden now, that changes everything, because virgins don't, they, they, they don't conceive. This, this is, this is the, yeah, this is well before the time of advanced embryology or in vitro fertilization or anything like that. This is something where where conception happens only one way. And that way usually involves a broken hymen, which would be the, the, the physical test of who's a virgin and hers, who's not. Okay. I mean, I, I realize that might be too much information, but it applies here. Okay, so this idea is controversial, but Mick, I love what you said there as well, because this is God calling out a sign. So this this has some significance, would have to have some significance, because the temptation is to look at this and say, wait a minute, if there is no Matthew chapter 1, how bad is this sign? So what does what's the implication of Matthew chapter 1, 18 and 25? So basically Matthew's saying, hey, when Isaiah wrote this, this is now fulfilled in jesus so what's the implication there back to isaiah 7 what do you think about that john
2: yeah well first of all mick uh yeah thanks for bringing it back to the inspiration of scripture i think that that point cannot be understated and also joel for for pointing out that the septuagint authors who chose to to insert the word that specifically means virgin and they did that one or two hundred years before matthew's account i think that's really important too they came to that, that same conclusion that that's, that's what he meant. So the Holy Spirit confirms by way of Matthew in Matthew 1 that Isaiah 714 is about Messiah Jesus. It means Isaiah spoke at least about Jesus. Um, if there was, whether or not there was an additional meaning that he was also referring to a woman, you know, in, at the time who was who was there in King Ahaz's court or something like that, as, as some have suggested. He was at least referring to that coming Messiah. And it, al- it also means <clears throat> that this Messiah is God, Emmanuel. God, God is with us, uh, and God will deliver his people by way of a redeemer, and that redeemer will himself be God.
0: Yeah, Make well, what can you add to the implication to Isaiah 7 of... Matthew one. Well, what is, does what Matthew one now help us to understand using the Holy spirit here as our guide? He inspired also Matthew one. So now working backwards, what does that mean about Isaiah seven?
1: So, I mean, yeah, with, with Isaiah seven, I mean, obviously this was supposed to be also a sign in a has time. So we know that there was a double fulfillment, you know, and God does that a lot with a lot of prophecies. Uh, and, and this is one of those classic ones. To me, the real question is, oh. Uh, who would that woman have been? Some have said it might be Hezekiah's mom, Ahaz's wife, or probably the, the mother to Isaiah's second son. You know, But but there's just so much there that we, we don't know for certain who, who that person would have been that would have been that virgin back when. But we know in Jesus' time who that virgin was, and that was Mary. There is no doubt about that. Yeah, she was a young and unmarried woman at the time, but she never had relations. And, and, and Genesis 1 makes it clear that, that Mary didn't know Joseph. You know, the, the, the usual euphemism for you know uh, what I call the Marvin Gaye school of let's get it on. You know, obviously Matthew was guided by the Holy Spirit and understood the virgin. And again, I go back to the fact that it was understood in Genesis 24 to be a straight up virgin. It was understood in, in Ahaz and Isaiah's time to be a straight up virgin. And obviously by the time Jesus was born, it Mary was a virgin at the time. Yeah I mean, it just to me
0: what I, and just echoing both of what you're saying and I appreciate that, to me what what stands out here, if, if I were to take Matthew one and kind of reverse engineer that and now go back to Isaiah seven, so now that helps me understand the word sign. So now that you both mentioned this would be God. well, at the very minimum, this is God saying to Ahaz. I'm going to cause a a miracle to happen. I'm going to change what's known about how how people get have babies. And I'm going to do something radically different. Mm -hmm. It would have been a great sign to him because it's like, I'm going to change your whole world. What you thought you understood, I'm going to flip that script. So what you think you understand about your geopolitical world, I'm going to flip that script too. And to prove it, I'm going to change this, the most intimate part of your life, your bedroom, and how things happen, I'm now going to cause a virgin to be with child, and that child's going to do something profound, so profound, I'm calling it out now, and that child's going to be linked to a name, and that name is the essence of your very faith, the very fact that God is with you, so trust him, I mean, that is just at the minimum, you've got that. So if we didn't have Matthew 1, this this prophecy doesn't even sound ordinary because this is God saying something extraordinary. But my goodness, now with Matthew 1, now this takes on, this becomes now foundational for our faith. This now opens up a brand new way to even conceive of God, the God who just isn't alongside of us, but dare we say he's with us? Wow. So much so that Jesus frames or Matthew frames his gospel with this. He begins his gospel with the Emmanuel prophecy and he concludes his gospel with Jesus saying, and lo, I will be with you, Emmanuel, all over again, even to the end of the age. The beginning of Jesus' ministry fulfills, the end of his ministry on earth and the first coming fulfills. I mean, there's something about that. Something's going on here. And and I really appreciate that. Mick, you, you brought up the idea of a double fulfillment. We might call that theologically an already and not yet. Uh, so, so John, would, would you kind of help us understand what might have looked this look like in an already and not yet fulfillment? Obviously the not yet is Christ, but what, help us understand maybe the already. What what? How might this been fulfilled in Ahaz's day?
2: Sure, so the, the grammar in this passage suggests that Isaiah is talking to or about a woman who is actually present in this meeting with Ahaz. Hmm. Uh, like someone who was in his court maybe or yeah in his family like like Mick was suggesting and by the way um, if we're talking about dual fulfillment it's really no wonder that a word with uh, kind of an ambiguous meaning would be used so that it could have a dual fulfillment it could have, serve a dual purpose so whoever whoever, uh, whoever that woman was that he's referring to her child will be made to eat curds and honey as opposed to bread and crops as a result of this coming desolation in the land. And eating these will remind him of his people's faithlessness, which has caused this desolation. And in in that way, it's actually the, the eating of the curds and honey that will enable him to distinguish what's right, what's right and wrong, um, eating those things and being forced to contemplate his people's uh, spiritual status. Um, so this, this will all be fulfilled presently, you could say, or very soon, you know, that's kind of the the, the already, this is coming to pass very soon. Um, but yeah, obviously, as we find out in Matthew, there, there's more fulfillment of that prophecy to come.
0: Right. So Mick, how, how do you help us out with this, the, the already and not yet fulfillment of this Emmanuel prophecy?
1: Well, like I said earlier, uh, I, I think there there had to have been, again, it was a sign for Ahaz to to witness. Right. So it had to be something that Ahaz was going to witness it. And again, the best that I, I found reading wise is that it may have been Hezekiah's mom, uh, kind of makes sense in the sense that he's part of the king's family, you know, um, kind of a, a type of Jesus, I suppose, you know, from the line of David, so to speak. Um, I, I, beyond that, you know, God didn't find it necessary for us to know exactly who that person may have been back when. But we know again, in Jesus's time, it was Mary. And and that's the real kicker right there. Right. I mean, I guess from the text,
0: I mean, we're in, we're in chapter seven and John reminded us of the, you know, here I am, send thou me moment of the, the throne of heaven in chapter six. So he went back a chapter. Let me just skip ahead to one chapter here because in chapter eight, verses one to three, um, Isaiah. So basically, God commands Isaiah to bring some witnesses in, mm, and then right. Isaiah has sex, and he says v- verse three. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him, and it's the, actually the longest proper name in the Bible, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Assyria will be carried off, or the plunder of Syria. Samaria, excuse me, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So linked to this prophecy of seven and nine, where God's saying, hey, trust me, by the way, they're they're, going to be crispy critters here, and Assyria is coming the very next chapter. So you could make an argument that Emmanuel is Isaiah's son, that here it is kind of linked to this, and that the initial prophecy is going to fulfill what God wants to happen then. But it's that because of the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Matthew yeah. chapter 1, we now understand, no, there's something grander here. It invites us to ponder, yeah, there's an already kind of fulfillment, but there's a not yet. as something that we, we, we're very appreciative of that theological understanding, because otherwise we really wouldn't understand salvation in terms of First Peter chapter 1, where, where he talks about a living hope, and you're going to attain the salvation of your souls. Mm-hmm. So, So what do you mean by that? You mean there's a future side of my salvation? I thought I am saved. I thought, I'm, I thought salvation is done. Well, it invites us to ponder that, yeah, you are saved, but there's still a full and final aspect of your salvation that awaits you because we still deal with sin and we still have to repent and we still have to confess and all those things, but one day we won't. And so there's this idea there's an already, but there's also a not yet. Okay. So it's like every new son of David was rendered the Messiah, but was that son of David, that the son of David? There's a not yet aspect of that, each new one. So we love the fact that these fulfillment have So Ahaz gets his sign, but that sign is going to point to one day a major, major fulfillment. And we're so grateful for Matthew's gospel for tying that to Jesus. So now we can understand that's how God works sometimes. It doesn't make God a liar. It just makes okay. There's there's an the initial fulfillment, and then there's a full, and then more more importantly, full and final fulfillment. That that that's what gives that's what gives me peace with this prophecy, to know that it, may, it meant something in Isaiah's day, and it was fulfilled finally, in Jesus's day. All right, this is this has been a fun walk through this prophecy. So let let's bring us to a close. So we're gonna start with J- John. If you'd help us, please. And, and, and if, you, if you don't mind, if, if you link this to 2 Timothy 3, 5, that's, that's kind of the verse I found that would help here. What is the danger? Our, our listeners need to hear this because we don't want to be Pharisees. We don't want to just have this outward show. So what is the danger? What is What, what does Ahaz teach us now? The danger of piety without true faith.
2: Mm-hmm. Ahaz teaches us quite a bit. By the way, if you're playing masterclass theology bingo, be sure to scratch off crispy critters. <laughs> Joel did manage to slip it in there in case you missed it. Yeah, what does is, what is Ahaz teach us vis-a-vis uh, Timothy here? I'll read that verse because it's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, this is 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, etc this and that, skipping the verse five, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid mm. such people. Mm. So that difficulty in the last days, we're in those, those last days right now. That just refers to the age, this present age between when Christ ascended into heaven and when he comes back. Timothy, he, so he, he lists every manner of ungodly person imaginable, basically. Uh, that those of us who are believers need to be aware of or be, you know, led astray as the people of Judah were. Um, And these ungodly people, he notes, will have, they will have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Boy, if that's not King Ahaz in Isaiah 7, God tells him to basically wish upon a star. Ask whatever you want so that I can prove to you that I'm faithful. How many of us would have wished... God would say that to us. Right. And Ahaz says, "Mm, no, because I don't want to put you to the test, but it's, it's false reverence, right? The reality is, and his actions reflect this. Like we talked about earlier, he doesn't have the faith to ask whatever he wants of God. He's out of touch with God. He has the appearance of godliness, but literally denies God's power. And Timothy is as strong as he can be here. Avoid such people. They're toxic. They will lead you astray. They will lead you away from, they'll lead you away from God even more than people who make who don't even make claims to be in relationship with him and it's they're dangerous because they they're fooling everybody around them by making it look like they've got it together spiritually when in reality they they're doing nothing to serve God or others
0: mm. great reminder That causes
2: all kinds of spiritual destruction
0: wow don't be Ahaz
2: don't be Ahaz
0: wow all right well let's go back to let's go back to science real quick because we, we dealt with signs in the New Testament as well. The Pharisees saying, give me a sign. And Jesus, you know, they're not really pleased with that question. So so Professor D, the question, uh, the, the $300 question comes to you. Do signs create faith or confirm faith?
1: Oh, absolutely. Hands down. They confirm faith. I mean, you know, going back to the same old Pharisees, Jesus said to them, if Sodom and Gomorrah had the signs that you guys had seen, they 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 would have there would have been a different story, you know, he goes, you guys have no excuse whatsoever. And he's, he, he badgers them with that point, you know, that, that, that there, that it has, it is, it is here to confirm. And, you know, and I'm, and and as as I was saying this, one of the things that came to my mind was when, when the, uh, the four guys bring down the paralytic from the roof, what, what happens there? You know, Jesus says, your faith has made you, you know, your uh, first of all, he goes, your sin. You know, he saw their faith, and he said, their fits, there's that that your that your sins are forgiven. You know, and then he did he did the signs as an aftermath. But why? Because they were already believing. They were already believing, and at that point, it was just done as a confirmation that the reality that I have forgiven your sins. Here's, you, you know, I'm gonna give further proof to everybody who's looking here, who's willing to believe. Of course, the Pharisees that weren't among them, but there were other people there who were. Mm. Amen and amen. So as we, as we did last time,
0: as we'll do this time, we end, we end with hope because our, our Isaiah journey is a hope journey. And does... Emmanuel, does God with us give hope? I put forward to you Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. We who know that Psalm pause and go, why? For thou art with me. It doesn't matter what valley you're in. God's with you. Therefore, in in, in Psalm 56 and in Romans 8, this very idea of God be with us, who can be against us? This very idea that, the, I mean, before the incarnation of Christ, the most the Old Testament believer has is that God is alongside of me. That God is, I don't know, tabernacling or something. He's there. He's, he's in some kind of a presence. There's a, there's a basic Shekinah glory. But now all of a sudden, God linked the presence of Emmanuel not to something separate, but dare we say, a virgin's going to be with child. Each of us is once a child. Now, all of a sudden, the promise of hope takes shape. God is going to be with us in a metaphysical sense as well. God is with us. God is actually going to take it our form. He's going to be incarnate. There's going to be something miraculously different and unique about Jesus that's going to communicate so much more hope. God is with me. God can understand my pain. God is with me. There's hope there. There's now no loss we can't overcome. In an ultimate sense, we can trust this very God who's with us. There's hope now. There's hope. The very hope of Emmanuel, that hope, that faith has teeth because Jesus endured the grave. Each one of us is going to endure that grave. He joined us in that death. And the same one who joined us in that death, he's able to bring us out with him. There's hope there. That's getting ahead just a little bit. The basic hope of God
1: with us. I am no longer alone. Thou art with me. The game has been changed. The Emmanuel prophecy, especially as we understand it, in Jesus,
0: the word become, dare we say it, flesh. Now the mic has been dropped. Now the game has been changed. Emmanuel, Emmanuel means now so much more we have so much more hope now because of that prophecy originally
1: given in a throne room. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, fulfilled finally in Jesus.
0: Thank you for joining with us tonight in masterclass theology. And from Isaiah chapter seven, we continue with part three next week. As always, I'm big Rev.
1: And I'm still professor D.
2: I'm still crockpot and I'm still new here as attested by the fact that I do make mistakes such as Timothy it was not written by Timothy. It was written by Paul. Please forgive my, my rookie mistake. I know you guys were going to be, this is probably a fireable offense. So I guess this is the last time I'll be on this podcast, right?
0: We're, we're, we're very honored to be able to extend to you grace, my friend.
2: Wow. It, it's been Thank given you. to
1: us. <laughs> Believe me, There's more to go around. Have a good night. And God bless. Amen.
0: This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode. And I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.